Episode 93 of Shanley on Batman. Tonight, Mark Hughes joins us once again, probably for the, I would say, fifth or sixth or seventh time. It's It's been a lot. Go back and look. We throw back in the middle of the episode that episode 18 was Mark's first appearance on the show, and that's where you can get his his origin story, I guess you would say. But for those of you that do not know, because it has been a while, Mark is a writer for Forbes.com. Yeah, Forbes. He writes uh, about Hollywood stuff and movies and superhero movies. But this guy loves, loves superheroes and loves Batman like like we love Batman. We have talked to Mark for hours about all kinds of Batman-related stuff. Go back and listen to it for real. And he also is a co-host of Superhero News Check that out on Twitter, at Superhero News, and make sure you go to Forbes.com and check out what he's wrote there as well. But we're going to jump right into it. Uh, We actually get into some sad stuff right off the bat. We recorded this a couple weeks ago, right after the great Adam West had passed away. So uh, Justin, Kyle, and myself with Mark all give our, our memories of of Adam West and how we remember him and what he meant to our lives. So we do that and then just boom, straight into straight into Batman and DC Universe talk. Uh, it's been a while since we talked to Mark, so we talked some Batman v Superman even, a little bit of Suicide Squad, I believe, and we talk a lot about Wonder Woman and what Wonder Woman means for the upcoming DC films. It's a great episode, full of information. I really hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Episode 93 of Shanley and I'm Batman with special guest Mark Hughes. A couple days ago, we got the sad news. I remember hitting up Tom and he was all sad, but Adam West passed away. And, you know, we're we're not going to spend too much time on it, but we're all going to like do a little round table, like our first like kind of, like experience like our favorite memories of Adam West Batman. When I was a kid, we used to go up north to the Upper Peninsula in Michigan. There's and uh, like for our vacation, we'd stay in hotels. And when we were a kid, uh, we were very we weren't very rich, but whenever we'd stay in a hotel, we'd have cable. We'd have cable at like my own place. Way back then, you had like an antenna. You had to turn the antenna to get to like a like a signal of anything. But one of my favorite things about going on vacation was we had cable and that my parents would always turn on uh 66 Batman and we and like it was like a whole family like everyone was getting ready in the morning like everyone's ju- taking their turns to the shower brushing their teeth and then we would all as we were getting ready and going to before we went on our merry way for the like the next you know waterfall or lighthouse we'd go see we would sit and watch 66 Batman as a family and I remember my parents gushing about how prevalent the series was when they were a kid. And that's something that will always stick in the back of my head with my folks, with my family, is how it kind of like all brought us in that like one moment in time, like watching that. Like every time we went on vacation, we used to go on like summer vacations every year. It was a huge thing. We'd see like all of Michigan, but like no matter where we would go in Michigan, We'd always wind up at a hotel that had cable, and we'd all wake up to, you know, watching, you know, Adam West Batman, you know, seeing Vincent Price and all these, like, really garish characters. So I will always, you know, cherish those memories with him. Like, I thought about bringing up, like, the Comic-Con thing from last year, you know, getting to ask him a question. But for me, like, it always comes back to, like, your heart with Adam West because that's really what he was as Batman was the heart of the Cape Crusader so if anyone else wants to jump in and share like a favorite like memory of Adam West go for it well 
I grew up watching uh, the Batman TV series as a kid, and you know everybody. I won't recount my entire like Mark's origin of being a Batman fan thing because that's kind of I've done that enough. But uh, you know, I've been Batman was particularly important to me because it's how I learned to read, and it was comics and movies were a window into a bigger world for me as a kid. When we where I lived, there just you didn't have a whole lot of opportunity or a whole lot of anything really, and. Uh, that TV show, I mean, as adults, we can look back and we see it's campy. But for me, I got that there were jokes and that it was kind of tongue in cheek sometimes, but it was still exciting. It was live action Batman. It was the only live action Batman I'd ever seen. It was the, you know, all of Batman's most famous villains were there. We had the cast of characters. We had really cool angles. It was fun. There were cliffhangers. And I would... I just, I thrilled at it. I ran home from school to see the next episode and it was on every day. It was in syndication. I'm not so old that I watched it during the original run, but in the seventies, in the mid and late seventies, you know, as a kid growing up, I would come home from school and it was on every day in the afternoon and I just loved it. And, uh, Adam West also voiced, you know, Batman in cartoons as well in the late seventies. Um, and I had watched those cartoons as a kid in the 60s, the same basic cartoon, but without Batmite and all the corny stuff that came into it later. And it was not Adam West doing the voice originally, but when he, they revived that cartoon, and it was the new adventures of Batman and Robin, and Adam West was, and I, the fact that it was the live action Batman I knew was there again, and I was hearing his voice coming out of the cartoon characters that I had loved so much as a kid, just, it was like Adam West really was for me. He was Batman. I know a lot of other people grew up with the '90s cartoon, but Adam West for me, and you know, until 1989, Adam West was what it was it for live action Batman for me. I was of that generation, and that's what I grew up with: live action cartoons. It was Adam West all the way. And I would, my mom would take old clothes and would make us little masks. The little ears on the side to play Batman when I was like six and seven years old. And I still remember that. And I wish I had one of those masks now just as a keepsake or something. It was cheesy, but it was fun. And he represented, you know, we talk about how corny that show is, but he represented that, that sense of optimism and hope and being a real hero to people. Uh, that Batman was for me and it's easy to be drawn into just the dark and violent nature of Batman which is clearly a really a big part of his character but we sometimes forget that childhood wonder and love of Batman and the things that made him stand out as a hero to us and it wasn't just darkness and violence you know as a kid it was that he knew what was right and he would do what was right no matter what and he protected people who couldn't protect themselves and that was such an important lesson to me. And Adam West distilled all of that into a really iconic, timeless version of Batman. And I hope anyone who's listening to this who doesn't really watch or appreciate that cartoon, that, that live-action TV series will go back and watch it with kind of a different sense of what Batman was at that time and what it means to children who've never seen a live action Batman before to have Adam West standing there telling us this is what's right. This is what's wrong. Help people do the right thing and stick up for those who can't stick up for themselves. And I, I remember when we first, the, the first episode we had you on and I actually looked it up. It was episode 18. So if you want to go back and hear Mark's origin story into Batman, <laughs> listen to episode 18 of Shanley on Batman. <laughs> But I clearly remember you talking about Adam West in that episode and, and how you spoke about how he, Adam West is your Batman. And, like, I, I list, from listening to other podcasts and stuff this week, like, that's, that's the story that I've heard from a lot, of, a lot of people is, like, Adam West and Batman taught me the difference between right and wrong. Like, at that time, that was... That was the only thing on TV like that, to do something like that. So I always remember Adam West from, uh, I stayed with my grandparents a lot when I was a kid. and uh, I would watch Batman the Animated Series, and my grandfather says, oh, you like Batman? Like, this is my Batman. And he got VHS tapes 
of, uh, I don't think it was all of them, because I only remember a handful of them from being a kid, but he got his hands on them somehow, and we used to watch them pretty frequently. I, I mean, the tapes were pretty wore out by the time we stopped watching them together, so I always remember that, so, I mean, definitely lost the best Batman, for sure. We're completely dating ourselves. VHS <laughs> antennas, watch TV. <laughs> Man, that was so long ago. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt, he was an icon of the of his age, and even today, you can just see the influence he's had from for the character, and even other medium, just just far reaching. Like there's there's without a doubt, he was one of the most influential actors of all time, and just helped to influence an entire generation of Batman fans, much in the same way we talk about Kevin Conroy or even the newer Batmans today, like his, his influence will be remembered forever. Just about. Definitely. And def- and you can't forget about Mayor West. Like that's some of his finest work for sure. Like, I watch family guy and just roll when Mayor West is on. It's the stuff that they made that man say is like, to die for it's hilarious have you actually it's uh, uh there's a the movie drop dead gorgeous have you seen that yes uh, it's just and i love him in that movie and that just a little bit that he's in it and then them talking about him is so funny <laughs> i love he's just terrific yeah, if you haven't seen that it's a great film perhaps the noise should have avoided me that's what i always remember of him I'm that I'm family guy. When he snaps, doesn't know it's next. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Who was just Adam Wee character? <laughs> and then there's another episode where he has a, it's not it's a, not a harpoon, but he like it's but it's like it's, he puts cats on this. Oh my god. Like, <laughs> maybe Tom remembers. Yeah, I know. I can't remember what he calls it, but he's got a cat launcher, and he's just shooting cats. Like, it's like a crossbow that shoots cat. Yeah, it was good. Uh, he called it, like, a kitty cannon or something. It was great, though. <laughs> uh, all right, all right. That's enough with the with, with, with the sad. Uh, he's definitely going to be missed, for sure. But we got Mark Hughes back, and it's been a long time. We said that off the microphones. It's been, like, a year and a half, I think, man. So... No, it hasn't been that long, has it? It was I wasn't so. I on it uh, in December, right? Was I? Uh, has it been we haven't, had, we haven't had you on since not this last Oscars, but the Oscars before that. Yeah. Oh my God, I had no idea. Yeah, well, yeah, can't go that long again. That's I'm, I apologize <laughs> for that. I did, I did not realize. I get I do a whole, I get a lot of podcast requests, and it yes. was getting to where I was having to turn a lot of them down and. With work, it just gets kind of difficult, and I forget which. And because I talk to y'all anyway, separate from the podcasting, right. I forget when. Like, I'm sure there. I'm probably thinking of like a text exchange <laughs> on text <laughs> messages, and I thought it was the podcast, and that's what I remember. That didn't we talk about that? No, Mark. Yeah, we, we, we have. We yeah, we've all definitely talked a lot. And that's what before we got a hold of you. That's what we were talking. I was like, no, we just, we see is like we see his tweets and his like Facebooks every day and stuff. And then like we talk to him. So he's always around, but I don't even, we haven't really even had the chance to talk BBS even, man. So, yeah. Wow. We got a lot to, we got a <laughs> lot to hit on. About, are we seriously not talking about Batman versus Superman? Are you kidding me? No, yeah, no. Not Jeez. You. Oh my. So if anyone wants to ask Mark a question about Ben like Batman, do it. <laughs> 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 Batman vs. Superman, I don't know if y'all have heard, but it's a really good movie. That's first, I'll say. And yeah. if you, it's it's out on Blu-ray. You should get it if you don't have it. <laughs> is there a special edition ep- of it now? <laughs> there is. It's, it is extremely special because it <laughs> solves a lot of complaints that some folks had about it. I don't know if you've heard this, but there's a whole lot of extra plot that's not in theaters. Yeah, it's really great. Check it out. <laughs> Um, so let's let's jump into the questions. Now, recently it was revealed that Joss Whedon is kind of shepherding the final reshoots, if you will. Like he's finishing the film. My question to you is, Mark, is he in, is he like in charge entirely of the film? Like like final touches and marketing? Does he a final cut? Say like what? How much control does he have? 
going forward with Justice League? Well, um, he uh, just for just to click because I know there's still a lot of debate and argument and disagreement about it. The situation is that he cre- he wrote earlier this year. Um, he uh, Zack Snyder was doing his he was doing a first cut of the film uh, at the start of the year and. When he was when he had done that and he had his rough cut, he was looking at it and decided he there were some more scenes he wanted. Reached out to Joss Whedon and asked Josh uh, Joss to come in and uh, write some extra pages. And Whedon was was very very happily accepted that and, and came in and said, "Yeah, I'd love to to help out and work on it." Wrote some ex- some more scenes, some extra scenes, and Zach was going to film those. But as we all know, his family suffered a terrible tragedy, and as it turns out, he's not able at this point. It's more important to be with his family, and they've got a lot that they're going to be dealing with and going through. So. Uh, Zach and Deborah have stepped back from the film, obviously, and so Joss is going to be the one who films those extra scenes, which is the majority of what's being done is filming new scenes, not reshoots. It's uh, I mean, there are people who will say any new footage is reshoots is a catch-all. Well, that's not the way that it's been used, so I'm, I'm drawing a distinction because the rumors about this have tended to kind of act like it's a reshooting of the movie and that the movie's not good enough or not right, so they're having to throw a bunch out and refilm it. That's not what this is. That's false. It's uh, These are new scenes primarily is what he's filming. Then there will also be reshoots. That's a small portion of what's being done is the reshoots and pickups. Most of the reshoots that are being done uh, and pickups are that stuff that is typical, that was already, most of it was already, not all of it, but most of it was already scheduled and planned. Generally, they planned like any blockbuster does to have a certain amount of extra shooting. So that was set aside. Well, they're going to do that, and that's going to be a portion of it, but most of it will be new scenes. And then there will be some additional reshoots that are necessary that weren't part of just the regular stuff because of continuity issues, because of new scenes, and for other reasons. There's some various stuff that will also be done. Um, the film, as it was made, what the, the rough cut that uh, Zach had already done earlier this year, the, the, the footage that's been done, some of that will be will have to be replaced with reshoots and then some of it will be cut out because of the new footage that's coming in. We'll make some of it redundant or whatever. But what was filmed is almost is vastly, overwhelmingly, most of that is going to remain in the film. So no, any notion, any impression that anyone has or has tried to give that a significant portion of the film that's been made already is going to be taken and gotten rid of is that simply not true um now joss is going to after he films does the 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 new filming this summer he will assemble the final cut of the film he's going to be finishing the film the snyders have stepped away and it is now in joss whedon's hands to complete this picture he'll be finishing it he'll be doing the final cut of it whether or not the snyders you know in a couple of months feel like they want to step back in and and kind of look at it and offer ideas or suggestions or whatever. We don't have a crystal ball. No one does. But my understanding at this point is that they have stepped back and said that in order for this to be smooth, to go smoothly and for them to, they need to do what they need to do with their family now. And the film is a separate thing and it has, that has to go forward as well. And for the best possible process for everyone that what makes the most sense is to say, we're going to step back and the film is going to go on. Joss is going to handle that. And he's the one who's going to finish that now. And put the, and he knows already he had, there's a rough cut. He knows in general how it's supposed to go. He knew when he wrote those scenes, having worked with Zack Snyder on what the scenes were going to be and what was needed anyway. So he's going to assemble it and it's going to be very much in a completion of Zack Snyder's film. Whedon, of course, is an artist in his own right. He will undoubtedly have influence and an impact on the final film. So I'm not going to be disingenuous and suggest, oh, no, he's all he's going to do is he's just 
he has he's like a person sitting at a table assembling a puzzle that's already got a picture on it and that that's all it is is a technical assembly or edit. there's a lot of artistry involved in editing and in assembling and in choosing the shots and then he's filming some of this as well so i don't think anyone should should uh do a disservice to joss whedon and the tremendous effort he's putting into this and the work he's going to do but it's going to be Zach's it's Zack Snyder's film first and foremost and this is he's not going to re-edit it to change it from to get rid of Zack Snyder's artistic vision for this movie I only I'm, I'm excited for Joss to do because if you need someone to come in and you know shoot a superhero team up film it's Joss Whedon. My only thing is leave Junkie XL to do the score. That's my only thing. <laughs> yeah. Just leave that man. I just want to hear his amazing soundtrack to Justice League. That's all I'm going to say. Other that's than, a great job, yeah. He was, he was handpicked by Zimmer, though, wasn't he? Like, yeah. He, yeah, so, like, and Zimmer said he was stepping down, so I kind of feel like the torch was passed there. I don't think they'll get rid of him, but, I mean, I don't know. But I think that was kind of like a unsaid torch passing like this is my replacement guys yeah i one thing i do want to mention by the way that is uh i think a lot of people forget about uh when it comes to this and they're saying well you know i've had people ask me and you and i may have talked about this justin just in private but i don't remember who i was just talking to about this who said well has is that has it ever happened that another director has like come in and finished another director's film or that a director has come in and filmed part of another director's film and i'm like yes constantly for example every film you've ever seen you probably you know a lot of people didn't realize that's what there's assistant directors there are second unit directors multiple directors actually make just about any big budget movie that you see uh like for example i mean I won't name the franchise, and I almost did, unfortunately, but uh, there's there are some action franchises that the directors that come in and do them, uh, they handle a lot of the stuff, and they handle that, you know, they have artistic input and the vision on how they want stuff to go, but when it comes to the big action sequences, that those scenes and those sequences have a special team that have always done it for those franchises and that always will. And all of the action sequences that you watch are primarily handled in the vision of a completely different director. That happens a lot. Not all the time, but it happens. And most filmmakers have an assistant director they have, who steps in occasionally. They have second unit directors who handle it when you know the production is big enough that it needs multiple... Uh, multiple productions going on at the same time and filming going on at the same time. So this is non-unprecedented, first of all. And then there are examples of films that have had a director leap. Superman the movie, Superman 2, actually. uh, uh, Superman the movie and Superman 2 were filmed at the same time. Richard Donner was trying to make it a two-part. It was going to be one big story in two parts. And the first one would end with Superman... Uh, throwing the nuclear missiles into space. There wasn't going to be a whole reversal of time at the end of the first movie. That was going to happen at the end of the second film. And it was a two-part story. And when he throws the nuclear missile into space, uh, this is boring, y'all, I know, because you've already seen this, but a lot of things happen. Uh, Superman is supposed to throw the missiles in space. It blows open the Phantom Zone, and then they come out and they come to Earth. And the first movie was supposed to end with him throwing the missiles in space, the Phantom Zone breaking, the villains coming out yelling, freedom, and that's the end. And it says part two, you know, it's going to continue in part two. And then the second movie picks up from there. Okay. But, you know, the producers were like, they they didn't want him to keep doing it all as one. They wanted a film that they could hurry and release. And so he had to go rush it, finish the first movie, and then get unceremoniously dumped from the second movie, and then, you know, the rest is history. But uh, that's an, that's a, a, an example is the very first superhero film that started the modern superhero genre, that's exactly kind of, you know, that a new filmmaker came in and completed that larger project by finishing this, taking over and reshooting a lot of the second movie and all that. So this happens. It's not uh, having multiple directors on a film is not uncommon. It's extremely common in most movies, most big blockbusters. It happens anyway. So that's my rambling 
thoughts on that. That, that was a conversation. <laughs> I remember texting you. I was like, well, "Oh my god, this is on." And then you're like, "No." And then I was watching the other day. I was watching the behind the scenes Lord of the Rings, and there was like five or six different directors going on. So I was like, "Oh, oh okay. right." <laughs> when you see that, you're just like, "Who the hell are these people?" <laughs> oh, also the directors, also directed by. Okay, now I get it. <laughs> yeah. So I, at first I was like, "No," but then it's like, "Okay, now you kind of broke it down." But yes. What Mark was saying was go pick up Superman 2, the Richard Donner cut. You'll, you'll yeah. If you haven't seen it's a compl- I mean, it literally, it's like two different filmmakers were told a basic concept of what if super, what if the villains from the Phantom Zone came to Earth and then Superman loved Lois and lost his powers and then the villains took over that he had to get his powers back and fight them. And that's all you had, and they both went and made totally different movies. That's how completely different and unique the Superman Donner version is. It's just fantastic. I love it. I know we can't talk to you all night, unfortunately, so we've got to move on yeah. stuff. <laughs> but something that... Um, Wonder Woman happened, obviously, and Wonder Woman was lovely. I know that all three of us <laughs> really, really enjoyed the film. But... All that being said, man, you've talked about it in several places. We've talked about it in tons, too. But the the thing that we have come up to is that this was the first film that was completely under the rule of, of Jeff Johns in DC film. And we feel like Wonder Woman is like the perfect mix of brick and mortar to lay the foundation for Jeff Johns' DC Films. Yes. Could you get into that and tell us what you think about what Wonder Woman says for upcoming films we have to look forward to? Yeah, well, I, Wonder Woman, uh, one of the things I love about Wonder Woman is that it is a combination of multiple perceptions and multiple flavors of the superheroes. Uh, for example, it takes it takes the history and the, the traditional origin of Wonder Woman and being made of clay, and then it made, it it, changed, it incorporates that into, you know, the modern version, which I don't actually, I don't, there, in case there's anyone listening to this, I won't say specifically what the differences are, but there's, you know, we hear, we kind of get two different origin stories for her and uh, background uh, explanations for her. And Wonder Woman, very often, there are people who perceive Wonder Woman just as they want to see her as this just badass warrior who's thirst for war. And, you know, some of the stories have really focused more on her as this ruthless warrior and as like a general who leads people, who just kind of perceives the world through that combat lens kind of thing and who smiles at battle. But then there are also people who prefer to remember, you know, Wonder Woman, the whole concept was that she was someone who would love peace and who tried to teach mankind a different way forward and to not give in to their worst violent impulses and instead to make peace together and to, to reconcile and the, that idea of redemption. And I think what the movie Wonder Woman has done is merged. If you, if you prefer Wonder Woman, the warrior and that's really what the part of her personality and of her origin and of her her the work she does as a superhero that appeals most to you, you're going to love Wonder Woman. If you love the aspects of her that are about peace and about loving people and her empathy for humanity and her desire to save humanity from its worst impulses and to be the angel of our better nature that sits on our shoulder and tells us there is a better way, you're going to love this movie as well. Jeff Johns... Uh, what is so brilliant about his writing? He's, I'll say, he's my personal favorite living comic book writer. I love Jeff John's work. Uh, and he, his understanding of these characters and his ability to perceive the different layers over the years and the hit, to take into account that there are people who love this part, there are people who love that. You can have dark as well as the, without losing the joy, without losing the sense of hope. You can deconstruct at the same and deconstruction is not somebody I read somewhere the other day someone pointed out like deconstruction is not just breaking something apart I mean if you say you're going to deconstruct a circuit board you don't pick up a rock and smash it to pieces you slowly take it apart to understand how it works better and you can reassemble it again and that's 
So I think people that don't like deep comic books that deconstruct the genre or films like Batman vs. Superman that are a deconstruction of the genre, I love that myself, personally, because I understand that it's not... It's not the antithesis of uh, of joy or of hope and the the, opt- the the optimism of superheroes. It's just a way of taking it, stepping back from it, and asking, what really is this about? What are some of the underlying things that we don't necessarily always think about there? Which is what Watchmen was as well. So I, I that resonated with me, and that it, you can deconstruct something and have the darker sensibilities, and then get to the hope and the optimism. But a lot of people, it's that that balance. Batman versus Superman clearly it ends with the sense of hope and is leading into the Justice League, which is a more upbeat and uplifting message and about faith and hope. But in order to get there, Batman versus Superman went to a very dark places and really delve deeper into the darkness of these characters and into the 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 sense of fear and foreboding and i think jeff johns is able he really keeps those things so balanced in it at any given moment one or the other when it's necessary can come to the forefront but you don't lose sight of the other and i think that's wonder woman was able to show us in the middle of a battlefield where People are being killed. She's looking at families torn apart. Children are being butchered and slaughtered. And yet, in the middle of all that, in a no entrench warfare, where there's just you know the, the the senselessness of the slaughter that happened in World War One with the trench warfare, where it was just people with whole 200, 500 yards apart. They're each in a trench, and then someone blows a whistle. A bunch of people climb up out of it and get mowed down instantly. It's just the the butchery of it. The movie Wonder Woman presented that moment and that situation and then used it to build an uplifting charge across the battlefield. And you're coming up out of your seats and you're, yeah, and you want to applaud. And it's it speaks to how well I think uh, Patty Jenkins uh, has that same ability that Jeff Johns has to to grasp multiple levels and to portray multiple levels of emotion and of tone simultaneously and to use darkness to actually bring about light and to use light to maybe help us see the darkness behind the light at the same time. And it's that wonderful balance. And that's, I think, Patty Jenkins and Jeff Johns really work so perfectly together in this movie because they have a very similar vision and very similar sensibilities and artistic capabilities, uh, which makes me think, by the way, that Patty Jenkins is going to work on other DC movies, not just Wonder Woman movies. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would think she is going to be a top candidate when it comes time to start thinking about some of other future possible team-up movies. I'll say that. Yeah. And straight up just girl power, man. Wow. Like, finally, younger girls have something that they can watch and film and look up to Gal Dot as Wonder Woman. Like, perfect. Like, you you brought up the trench warfare. Like, the movie was so good that when she jumped up out of the trench to charge, you still had the anxiety. Like, oh my god, she's gonna get hurt. It's like, she's freaking Wonder Woman. Like, that's not gonna happen. But, like, it was like, and then you just wanted to get up out of your seat, like you said, just cheer. Like, incredible, man. It's one of the best films I've seen in a long time. And I, I thought it was going to sound cliche to say it when I'd first seen it, but everybody's saying it. So, I mean, yeah. way, to, way to go. It, that's, that's the groundwork that we have for the DC universe, at least the DC film universe. And I think it's great. Yeah, and, and I think we it's important that fans understand that we can say these things uh, about how great Wonder Woman is and how it really represents a new stage in the DCU and how it really represents a turning of a corner for the DCU as far as mainstream perception and public love and for Jeff Johns really having much more of an influence over the direction and the tone and the feel of these movies, we can say that and love what this is without it meaning that we are unhappy with the previous 
films in the DCU because I love Batman. Batman vs. Superman is one of my personal favorite DC films of all time. I love it. Absolutely love it. Uh, and I don't agree with a lot of the, I don't agree with the, the, the criticisms of the film and the harshness uh, of the reaction it gets. But I do understand that it is of a tone and of a particular view uh, and a, a way of getting at these characters that a lot of fans and a lot of particularly mainstream audiences maybe weren't expecting and it wasn't what they were wanting. And because of the modern superhero genre being what it is, uh, and Marvel has done a great job. I know a lot of people don't like Marvel. I'm so, Marvel's fantastic at it. They're making living, breathing comic book movies. That's what their films are, living, breathing comic books. If, I feel like if you don't like Marvel movies, then maybe you don't like most comic books, which, you know, I, that's my that's how it makes me feel anyway, because I love the Marvel films and they feel like comics. But uh, my, that's just a long, rambling way of saying I get, I understand, even though I disagree with it, I understand that for most mainstream audiences who don't read comics and don't read DC comic books and aren't into the, the deeper mythology behind all of this, that some of the deconstruction and tone and approach of some of the earlier DCU movies didn't speak to them the way Wonder Woman does. I get that. And, uh, you know, there was, a, an article, I assume you saw the article today from Umberto Gonzalez at, uh, yep. uh, Heroic Hollywood, uh, at the rap, uh, actually talking at where he had spoke with uh, Jeff Johns and the, the words, uh, it's uh, heart, uh, humor, hope, heroics, and optimism are the things that are kind of at the, uh, I think he referred to it as at the base is what uh, Johns told uh, Umberto and said that's, you know, those are the words, that's the five words as, as Umberto says in his article that are what the superheroes were about for him and in the debut and the origin of these characters and you know uh that that's kind of what they're going to try to take the dcu back toward that idea of heart humor hope heroics and optimism and i'm i, I for fans who don't like that and complain i know and i don't uh, you know it, i don't want to start a big debate with a lot of fans online about this but i hear a lot of fans who act like the word fun or optimism or a dirty word and i'm like i get that you don't want it to be I can't, you don't want the Batman TV show. We all love the Batman TV show, but you don't want the feature films to turn into basically like kind of a comic book tongue in cheek. What everyone is sensitive about this and afraid of this. We all know why because of Batman and Robin, yes. <laughs> the, the movie Batman and Robin, which Joel Schumacher, I guess I saw a headline. I haven't read the article, but I saw Joel Schumacher apologized <laughs> for that this week. And uh, I think it's about time we stop asking Joel Schumacher to apologize, first of all, for it, Fair. because he did, he was doing what he was ordered, he delivered what he was ordered to deliver. Uh, that's a movie that kids, little kids love it, and it's certainly faithful to an era, a particular era. It's a, it's a big action, big screen version modernized version of the old batman tv show mm -hmm. and i can i don't really i don't dig batman and robin myself i don't really watch it but batman forever we all did it we talked about it and did it on we watched it on your show remember <laughs> you know we all it was great and uh, uh I, I i really i'll defend that movie forever but that's why Fans are sensitive about it. They don't want it. They're constantly in perpetual fear that we're going to get another Batman and Robin or another that Catwoman movie that we should not speak of ever again, but this one time we will say it. Uh, those are what... That's why I think DC fans are kind of oversensitive about the idea of fun and, and jokes being in the movies, and so they kind of immediately have flashbacks to that, and they're waking up in this, with cold sweats at night going, No! Nah! <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> Wonderful is what we're talking about. So when you hear people talk about hopefulness and optimism in the DCU and the going forward in the future, think Wonder Woman and you have an idea of what we're talking about. That's what you can expect. And if that's what you can expect, you should be very happy. Yes, very happy. Very well put. Um, I, I, I like that little pun that you made. I will defend that movie forever. That was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I will admit this, I kind of ruined the ending for Mark for Batman Forever when they're running and then the, the cowl wobbles a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I so, have not 
many times as I've seen it, until you said that, I had not noticed that damn cow wobbling like that. And then I saw it, and now we can't unsee it. Yeah, oh, he I, did that to me, too. It ruined it place now. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, thanks, Justin. Thanks, thanks, Justin. Go Sorry. look at John Ham <laughs> pictures. I will. I know you will. <laughs> Let's talk some Batman before we have to let you go. Oh, oh yeah, like, Batman. Like, <laughs> what, what does Matt Reeves bring to a solo Batman film? And I have one little concern going forward. Like, I think he's a brilliant filmmaker. I think that he has the pedigree, the panache, everything to, you know, really make a great Batman film. But my only concern is, you know, with the, the Planet of the Apes movie is, like, he likes to shoot a lot on set, which is fine, but I, I, after, you know, we were kind of spoiled with Chris Nolan, you shoot in the real world and with IMAX cameras, um, would, would you happen to have a concern like that? I know it's kind of like a long question. No, um, no, I, I get, uh, this is a great topic. This is a great, this is a great opportunity for me to point something out to a lot of people, something that they don't realize. Most of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes was not shot on sets. It just looked like it was. They had specially constructed cameras that they went into the actual jungle and into the woods and filmed that movie. I had a whole interview. Yeah, I did a whole interview with him where we actually talked about, and then I, I, uh, I actually got to put on some of the, the equipment and interviewed some what? of the, the, the stunt people and uh, and some of the actors in the movie, and we talked uh, uh, talked a couple of times with folks about the making of that movie, and that when you when they're out in the woods and you're seeing them traveling around, these they were out filming in the actual woods, and they had to build all of this equipment and create all of this equipment uh, to be capable of filming that, and IMAX cameras that were they could actually carry out into the jungle and that were waterproof. That was one of the big things with making sure it was waterproof because it rained and stuff like that while they were filming. So Matt Reeves is a filmmaker that when he makes a Planet of the Apes movie set in the woods, he's going to actually insist on having equipment made to go out in the woods and film it. And then when you watch it, you just assume that you're watching something that's on a green screen or on a set that's been constructed, but it's not. They're out in the mud and in the, the rain and actual, you know, the, the, out in the wilderness filming this. Um, so I would just, and, and keep in mind that, you know, Nolan used sets for his movies as well. I mean, when you look at uh, a lot of the, like in Batman Begins, for example, um, when he's in the temple or, you know, when they're, uh, and now I'm, I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> there's a, yeah. When they're in the narrows, there's a lot of this that's all was done on sets and there was a great deal of set work done. So it was, uh, there were a lot of outdoor sequences that were filmed in a particular city, but you know, if that's the kind of thing that's going to necessarily be filmed outdoors anyway, and in a city anyway. So, uh, Matt Reeves, I, I don't think anyone has to worry about Matt Reeves not bringing a sense of realism and, and a, set, a grounding to a lot of that kind of stuff in his movies. Um, I, there's just a mistaken perception because of the Planet of the Apes movies that there's a there's that impression that some a lot more of that was on sets than really was. And then look at Cloverfield. You know, I mean, uh, people forget Cloverfield is a movie that was filmed in New York and that was in different in various places anyway. And, and uh, Matt Reeves is a, is a great filmmaker. Um, I've, you know, I won't go into it all again. You've heard me before he was ever brought in to direct Batman. I was, I've been praising him as a great filmmaker who should make a DC movie and hopefully would be a Batman director someday anyway. And now he is. And it's because he, if you watch, I, I recommend actually a fun thing to do. Watch, the Dark Knight, and then watch Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. There are a lot of tonal similarities and a lot of performance the th elements, not not literal comparison, but it reminded me so much of The Dark Knight in terms of what it was as a, a sequel that just, you know, there's a first movie that's so great to start off a franchise, then you have a sequel that comes and is just mind-blowing where it goes with everything and that has this incredible the fact that those performances 
it's easy to forget that most of it is silent and that there it's all motion capture and these performers expressions telling most of the story and just incredible performances that were done so uh i'm not worried at all about uh matt reeves making a batman movie he is the only person the only name that came to my mind to replace ben affleck who i could imagine being as happy with his Batman movie as I was going to be with a Ben Affleck Batman movie. And I'm still, I mean, still, it's sad that we won't have a Ben Affleck Batman movie, but I am not sad that we're having a Matt Reeves Batman movie, if that makes any sense. I I have both of those feelings in my heart and in my mind at the same time, and they can coexist. It's a fair trade-off. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I find it very interesting how you draw that comparison between The Dark Knight and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Because when I watched the promotional trailers for uh, the upcoming Planet of the Apes, for some reason, the vibes I get from it are Dark Knight Rises. So, like, there, there's a continuity going here. Almost. Yes. Like, I haven't seen the whole movie, so I, I can't really say how the how it actually plays out. But this is, like, the vibe and the kind of the, the theme I'm getting just from watching the trailers. I, I completely agree. Uh, yeah, that's something I don't want to... I didn't... I don't want to go too far into, into that because I know... There are people who might take that as a negative, or I don't want to take the I don't want to take the comparison too far because he's not. I don't mean to imply that he's aping Nolan. Oh, but, uh, sorry, yeah, bad. I'm all about the puns today. No, <laughs> I don't mean to imply that, but it's it's true. I absolutely agree with you. It is 100 percent a very much a. a, a the way that kind of some of the sensibilities that I got from the the Dark Knight Rises as well. I'll, I'm seeing War for the Planet of the Apes fairly soon, so I expect to be uh, singing its praises here in the next uh, in the next several days. Well, what works for those apes movies is there's just enough story and enough action to keep you interested. Like obviously the visuals are very like very good but he has like that nolan-esque kind of uh where it's he he just draws you in with a good story and the tension and then they'll throw like this awesome action beat into it and it's it's very much story driven but it's an action summer popcorn flick that we all hope for and i'm really looking forward to war of the planet of the apes like maybe because i'm a huge woody harrelson fan but (laughs) Yeah, well, seeing him jump into the to the to the Bat Universe—that's for sure. I'm surprised he hasn't been in uh, uh, he hasn't been in a superhero movie yet. I mean, he was in—I guess he was in the one Defendor that's about the a crazy guy who tries to be. Oh, a superhero. Woody Harrelson. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but he's uh, not. I, the fact that he has not been in one of these movies yet is really, uh, really surprising to me too. Yeah. Um, can we, do you, let's talk a little bit about Nightwing, if you can. Um, what's interesting about what's going on with the Nightwing is we have a guy who has a proven track record with, like, the Lego Batman movie just came out on Blu-ray DVD today. And I'm, I'm looking forward to what he has to do with the character of Nightwing. Is there anything that you would like to see? Um, with an upcoming solo Nightwing film, um, other than obviously Nightwing and Blue Haven and so on and so forth. I loved Lego Batman, and I said yes. in my review that it was such a it was a really nuanced understanding of Batman, and one of the best act I think one of the best examples of a story and a filmmaker really really knowing and touching on some core elements of a character uh, and of what drives a character and of a character's personality that rarely, that usually go uncommented on or that aren't necessarily highlighted in a lot of stories or in a lot of movies uh, about Batman. So I'm really, the thing that I probably want the most is to see a movie that is about Dick Grayson that really lets, that gets into Dick Grayson's personality and the history he has and how all of that has affected him and how he's how he has moved out of the shadow of 
Batman to become his own person and his own hero, not just as a vigilante, but as a human being, as someone who, I mean, if you, you grew up in that Bruce Wayne's house and the shit he's got in his basement, then it's it would be really easy to be kind of, <laughs> it's hard to come out of that and really have a sense of your, purely of yourself and to have your own life and everything. And Dick Grayson is a character who did that. And he's a terrific, he's the only character that I've ever personally, uh, when they do stories in the comics where, oh, we're going to have, we need to increase sales, so we're going to have someone else take over the role of Batman for a while. I hate it when they do that. But Dick Grayson is the only person that I think it ever worked with. And there was that period in the 2000s when that happened. And with the Batman and Robin uh, comic that was really, really good when it started out, it was just some terrific stuff. And then, of course, uh, Scott Snyder's uh, Black Mirror's the things that he did for a while with Dick Grayson as Batman. I love the Dick Grayson character, and I'm glad that we're going to see a Nightwing movie, and I really hope that Chris McKay brings that same strong ability to dive into the personality and the character and what drives him uh, the way that he did in Lego Batman. We uh, we actually talked to Chris uh, when the Lego movie dropped, and it was the day that we talked to him was the day that the rumor was pretty much finalized, but it wasn't, yeah. you know? And, like, Justin pulled out this amazing question, and he was Thanks. like, what are you, a lawyer? And, uh, but, like, he really couldn't say much about Nightwing, but the stuff that he did have to say about Nightwing, like, you could tell it's a character that's, like, in his heart. Like, it's something that he's really yeah. looking forward to doing, and it's it's not, I don't, I don't think he's going to let us down with it at all really looking forward to Chris McKay night as well. I like what Chris Mark, what Mark had to say is he knows, like, it's the, it's like the, all the layers of the character he's so aware of and immersed of. The only, the, what was interesting about the conversation we had is that he loves Batman Returns. Yep. So, uh, so it's, it'll be interesting to see how Ludhaven or wherever they end up setting the film in, how deep he goes into that. Because he, he just had, he, it's like, he know, he can put like Easter eggs in his films that you're like, was that really that? And then you watch it again, it's like, yeah, that was. Like the joke about, remember that, there was a joke about the two boats, I was like, I looked at whoever I was with, was that a Dark Knight reference? <laughs> and watching it again, I was like, yeah, like, like he is, has that ability to do that, and it just, it just, and it works well. And I hope that he is able to throw Easter eggs. Maybe we'll see Batgirl pop in. Maybe we'll see like another version of Robin pop in. Maybe Jason, you know, go fight Jason Todd and stuff. Like those things, I'm looking forward to the most. Yeah, he's really good. He's uh, uh, he's a filmmaker that I trust a lot to get this character right, and that's interesting. I did. Uh, I, I forgot that he had said that about uh, Batman Returns. That was a really good podcast, and he's his. That's a film that you know. All I'll say that which now he'll never want to speak to me or do an interview with me. But that was <laughs> Batman Returns was a film that I love visually, and there's elements of that film. I think it has the best uh, bat. It's the best bat cowl, and probably maybe the best bat suit of the original, you know, uh, Batman series. And I thought, of course, everybody thinks Catwoman's terrific in it, and that was a great performance and a cool outfit. And then some of the visuals, that opening sequence with the penguin and his basket when he's in the sewer and it's going around the corner through the tunnel, when the, and then the bat, it's just some beautiful imagery. I didn't like the portrayal of Bruce Wayne very much, and I, I, I kind of felt like it, the plot just kind of was all over the place, and... There weren't. It looked like there weren't very many people that lived in Gotham, and I didn't want to see Batman smiling when he killed people all the time. There were a lot of complaints I have about that movie, and it's always it's it's a film that I've always been very critical of. And then several years ago, someone told me, and I, I if I'm repeating myself, then just uh, play with your fidget or something, listeners, for <laughs> all I say it. Uh, if you take Batman Returns and turn the color off on it so it's in black and white, turn the volume down and 
turn on the closed captioning so it's just subtitled and there's no audio, then put on a Wagner album and play it while you watch it. And just for the night, pretend that you're watching a rare, it's the first time you've ever seen it, it's a rare 1939 or 1940 Batman movie made by a German expressionist filmmaker. And that this is like, it's a Batman movie from when Batman first came out in comics before he had a Robin when he was running around with a gun shooting people and shit. If you do that, it's not perfect, but it's a completely different experience. And I suddenly had an appreciation for that movie that I had not had before and it had been a while since I'd seen it. And then I did that and it was like, Oh, now I get it. Now I like, I like this movie a lot more now than I did. Wow. What, what's interesting about if you listen it's to the, weird, movie, but it works. <laughs> <laughs> if you listen to the commentary track with Tim Burton as he always, whenever he was casting the, the roles in Batman, he always akin to his, like he always said like, there's there's looks like they can they can tell a story with their eyes. It's like I'm it was like I was working with a silent uh, movie actor or actress, and so yeah. the way that you bring that up, it's like yes, that's exactly like that scene with Bruce and uh, Selena at the the ball, and they just give a look to each other, and there's like a little tear going down on Selena's face. It's like, whoa, this is on a whole nother level, especially yeah. So. I just want to work that in return. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> it, I mean, it really, it does. It really works. Uh, and it's, if you don't like that, um, then I, I think it will at least, it'll give you a new impression of the movie. No pun in it. Uh, it'll give you a new feeling about the movie, I would think. Um, and you'll maybe uh, like it a little bit more than you did. And it's, it's, I think that it makes a little more obvious uh, what is uh, the the cabinet of Doctor Kildare is a movie that was a big influence on this, and it's you can see that clearly lots of this movie remind. So if you haven't seen that movie, even better if you've not seen the cabinet of Doctor Kildare, you can get it. You can watch it online for free in lots of places. I think it must be in public domain by now because um, it's all over the place on YouTube and everything else. Watch Batman Returns in black and white, the way I described it. Turn, you know, just the soundless and all that, and with the, the, the some Wagner music playing low in the background. Then watch The Cabinet of Dr. Kilgari, and you'll be like, oh, shit, okay, now I see where, like, half of this movie came from. <laughs> so it'll return you to Batman Returns. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. I'm telling you, this is uh, this is one of the few times that anyone who knows me has ever heard me discussing Batman Returns at length in such a positive way. Because it's been, I've had a slight turnaround about that movie. And I still, I, I prefer my Batman to not be giving an evil grin like, I just stuck a bomb in your crotch before he killed people. But I also... I understand that the influences on this movie were some of the original influences and some of the original stories. So I get where, and it's much easier for me to appreciate it when I'm thinking of it as like, this is an old 1930s Batman movie. I can completely let myself just get kind of swept into that perception of it. And it's very different. Were you going to say something, Tommy? You had like a sparkle in your eye. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't know. I'm good. Yeah. Open your eyes as soon as he said, put a bomb in the guy's crotch. <laughs> I mean, that's great. Uh, that's, uh, yeah. No, I'm good. <laughs> uh, so, Mark, as we begin to let you go, um, what do you have to, what are you looking forward to with, with all the stuff that's coming up with Justice League and upcoming Batman movie and all the stuff that's coming out, what are you looking forward to the most? I'm looking forward to uh, when Wonder Woman tops the six, passes the 600 million mark and people realize that, okay, this is really happening. This is really, this is what's happening right now. I look forward to that in the short term. I look forward to uh, Justice League, of course, and the reactions to Justice League and seeing these characters on screen together. I'm really jazzed about Aquaman, and we haven't seen a lot from it yet, but uh, I I look forward to the fact that we're about to 
after next year, we will live in a world where people don't make fun of Aquaman anymore. Think about that. Or at least where anyone who makes fun of Aquaman pauses and looks over their shoulder to make sure Jason Momoa isn't behind them before they make any Aquaman jokes because they're <laughs> like, he's, he, I'm going to make a joke about him, but he's a badass, so he could kick me if I look careful. But so that's... Vindication for you because you're the one who kept on saying Jason Momoa would be a perfect Aquaman for like many years, and here we are. I don't want to. I don't want to keep patting myself. I patted myself on the back for that so much that I, I <laughs> hate to do it again, but I will. Uh, yeah, I I spent. Uh, I I'm very happy that I took. That I spent five years. Well, was it five years? It was in 2011 the first time I mentioned it, and then it was in 2013 that I did the write up about like here's how to do Aquaman. Jason Momoa to look like he does on Game of Thrones, bleach his hair so he's got streaked, but not not white blonde. Let it have the dark highlights and yeah. the blonde high. Let it be mixed so it's kind of like a mixture of it. The long hair, the beard, have tattoos like ocean kind of like tattoos, and have the the have Atlantis be you know a warrior kind of society, and he's this real badass kind of cool guy. I completely take credit for having said that before anyone, and and everybody thought I was stupid or crazy for saying it. I caught so much shit for years for recommending that, and people who were like, Jason, that doesn't make any sense. Now everybody thinks it's just like great casting, but <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad I was the first one who thought it's it was It's like great they listen to us. <laughs> Congrats on that one, Mark. Because that, that, and I didn't know anything. I was say, I the, clearly that was way before they were even thinking about casting. So, so I think there's a limited number of guys that are big enough and have a broad enough chest and big enough arms to just stand on stage or on a movie beside Henry Cable and Ben Affleck. So you know, it was like, well, it was I. It was almost like there were only three people they could have cast as Aquaman at that point, and I was bound to get close. <laughs> When, when it was announced that Momoa was going to, I don't think I we've ever talked about like this in depth. When it was announced Momoa was finally cast as Arthur Curry slash Aquaman, were you like just like beside yourself with pump like fists, air pumping? I'll tell you the truth, I didn't. I swear to God, when it first happened, when people were first asking and saying, "Well, have you been cast? We heard you were cast as Aquaman. And we heard you're cast," and he kept saying, "No, I'm not. I swear, you can punch me in the face and all that." I was like, I felt like I was being heavily trolled. <laughs> I thought I was completely being trolled. And there was a point after which that I knew and had heard from, you know, I, I had heard from sources and from people what was the, what was going on. But I really thought that it was, I thought it was just BS. I thought I was being trolled. And at the point that it was obvious that, oh my God, that's really, they did it. I was just so happy because... I was convinced that that was the right way to do it. And that really actually went a long way in selling me on thinking they're going to get the DCU right because whatever birthing pains might exist in the initial stages, they're thinking that I like where they're going. I like how they're thinking about it. And with Aquaman, it was like immediately when you hear that they're doing that, like who, who did they cast, you know, uh, they cast Jason Momoa. You immediately go, oh, I know what they're going to do. <laughs> so you knew immediately, and it, I was like, that's the only way I could imagine doing Aquaman on the big screen and having it work and making it right and being a, you know, a really big what it needs to be, a big blockbuster fantasy film. So it, I immediately had a lot of faith in, uh, in, in that decision and in where they were going to go with the character. And now, of course, it... It just looks like it's going to be a terrific project, and I'm so excited for it. You know, James Wan's a billion-dollar film director, so yeah, he's, he, yeah, he, he can. He, I, I feel like if there's anyone who can pull it off, it's going to be him. And there, the things that he said about it, how he's excited about it, it seems like you know the powers that that be. You know, Jeff Johns, John Berger, kind of just like go do your Aquaman movie, just. We'll keep writing the checks to you, kind of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's it. just from like the outside looking in. That's what it kind of feels like. So what's well, the smart choice? That's the smart way to do it, isn't it? You know, when you've got uh, and that's think about that. That 
Justice League is probably going to be obviously a big movie. It's going to, I, if it's good, it's going to do a billion bucks, right? I mean, it's yeah. most likely that's what, that's what we all expect. If it's good, it'll do that. Um, the coattails of that movie, if it's good, and if everybody loves Aquaman and he really kind of steals some scenes the way it looks like some of the scenes that we've seen, that he might steal them. And then with with a billion-dollar filmmaker behind it, how insane would it be if in 2018 Aquaman becomes the highest-grossing DC movie? <laughs> Who would have ever thought that we would be saying the words, Aquaman is currently the highest-grossing film from the DC comic adaptations? But there it is, and it has that potential. I think it has that potential. I think it definitely does. Is there anything else anyone wants to ask Mark before we have? He has to take off and go do his thing. No, we just need to do this again soon. And what are you working yeah, on, Mark? Definitely. You're over at Forbes for sure, but like, what do we have to look forward to from you in the future? Where can we find you at on the internet highway? Well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm always over at Forbes, and I'm on uh, the Superhero News channel. I'm co-host yes. with Sean Gerber of Superhero News uh, at YouTube. So check out our videos there. And uh, at some point, you'll see... Somebody at some point is going to get smart and hire me to write one of the superhero screenplays. But if not, one of these scripts that I've, I've got uh, 15 screen completed screenplays for TV and film. So one of these is going to get out there and then you'll be interviewing me about my blockbuster hit show or hit movie. So, oh, yeah. uh, and in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at Mark Hughes Films. Awesome, man. We love having you on the show. I mean, no yeah, I love being here. here. Let's not make it a year and a half again. That <laughs> just completely horrifies me to hear that number. I had no idea. I honestly had no idea it had been that long. I swear to God, I thought it was that I was on last year before Christmas. So no worries, yeah. man. It's all good, but no worries. No worries. <laughs> you can get busy. All right, that's episode ninety-three of Shanley on Batman. Before we uh, wrap it up, we're gonna take care of some business. Want to give a special shout out to uh, Trayvon Brady, Trevon Brady. Still haven't figured out exactly how to say his name, but big shout out to him. He is our Patreon patron, and you as well can be a patron of ours for the low, low price of only $1 a month. We'll get your name shouted out at the end of the episode, just like Mr. Brady's there. And if uh, he's somebody you might want to follow on the tweets, you can hit him up at T underscore Brady 94 on the Twitterverse. Make sure you go to patreon.com forward slash podcast empire network. Like I said, for a dollar a month, we'll shout your name out. Uh, $3 a month will give you early access to our podcast. A day or two before they come out to the general public, you will be able to listen to them. For $5 a month, our, uh, our gold slot there, you can, uh, you can get exclusive unreleased podcast empire network content such as some like behind-the-scenes stuff, some bloopers and lost episodes. And then for the Platinum, you can give us $10, and we will put you in a drawing to send you some cool swag at the end of every month, and then you will get put in a drawing at the end of the year to be a guest on our podcast. So if you want to, if you've ever felt like, hey, I'd like to help those guys out, I've listened to a bunch of their content, they're funny, they're great, they're whatever, if you guys want to help out, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash podcast empire network and uh, maybe donate to one of those tiers. For episode 93 with our special guest Mark Hughes, I'm Tom Harper for the rest of Shanley on Batman. Thanks a lot. I am the knight. I am the knight.